I know a lot of pastors out there have had the difficulty of people leaving their church. You know, you can sort of in your own arrogance and ministry um, mind, you can convince yourself that, well, I know what's best for this family. And I know that it would be best for them to stay with us. And the Lord just has brought that scene to mind so many times to say, you're to trust me with this loss. You're to come to me with the grief of this loss, the sting of someone leaving. You're to walk with me and that I'm going to walk with them. Welcome to Your Pastor Reads Books. I'm your host, Heather Weber, and today my guests are church planters Austin and Amy Gannett, who talk with me about C.S. Lewis's novel, The Horse and His Boy. In 2019, Austin and Amy planted Trinity Church in Greenville, North Carolina, where Austin serves as the lead pastor and Amy as the director of discipleship. Amy is also an author and founder of the Bible Study Schoolhouse and Tiny Theologians, a line of resources that help pass on the Christian faith to the youngest members of the household. Today, we talk about church planting with gratitude, theology for kids, and the power of good literature to illuminate important themes from scripture. I hope you enjoy our conversation. All right. Well, Austin and Amy, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Thanks for having us. Yeah, so glad to be here. Yeah, it's exciting. This is a connection through a mutual friend, but um, also, Amy, I told you just as we were logging on today that your dad used to be my dentist. So <laughs> even though like we live in different states now, it's just such an interesting small world. It really is. And he is the best dentist that yes. anybody could ever have. So of course that connects me with a lot of people. He's been I'm my his... dentist for the past 10 years that's too. Right. So. Oh, really? Oh, <laughs> oh, that's... Yeah. That's... Oh, yeah. We may live in North Carolina, but our dental work happens in Iowa. Oh, wow. That's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. He's a good guy for sure. Well, Austin, Amy, you guys are both church planters going on year four of Trinity Church in Greenville, North Carolina. And you have two young kids. And it's so often that I see church planters about your age with young children. And that is a season where you are just balancing so much. And so I wonder, how's that been for you the last last four years? Honestly, it's been a ton of fun. It's been a lot of work, uh, but a whole lot of joys along with it. I think when we entered into church planting, there's a pretty common mantra that it's, it's going to be really hard. There's going to be a lot of spiritual warfare. Um, and there's just going to be a lot of, honestly, a lot of people try to prepare us for sorrows. Mm. Um, but I would say our overwhelming experience is certainly that there's been hard things. There's a lot of work involved, a lot of time investment to be sure, but we've also just really walked away with a lot of joys. Um, the Lord has just brought along such wonderful people who are part of the body, um, such people who are so willing to dive into the work. Um, so we really feel so blessed by it. And I feel so blessed to have like a true partner in ministry in, mm. um, you know, Trinity Church wouldn't be where it is without her as well. She just puts in so much work and is such a part of the work at the church and is so integral to so many of the relationships. I can't imagine um, doing this in any way solo. Uh, church planning is never solo work to begin with, but especially without her being involved. Uh, would you add anything to that? Yeah, I think I would just say we love working together. Mm. And um, you're so kind to honor me with your words, but we just... Ever since our seminary days, which is where we met, we met at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary in the Boston area. Ever since we met, we sort of connected over a love of reading, a love of poetry, a love of theology, of having doctrinal discussions, sometimes doctrinal debates just to keep things a little spicy. Mm -hmm. But we just connected over this love of doing things together. And I think that that has been such a joy in church planting is really linking arms and doing work side by side, which comes with its challenges. People were not wrong to warn us of sorrows, to warn us of challenges. Um, but it sort of reminds me of how people prepare a lot of young couples for the first year of marriage. You know, mm -hmm. when we were engaged, people were preparing us for the first year of marriage. And we kind of walked away from that. Um, those challenges of how hard the first year people had told us it would be, we kind of went into marriage going, okay, it's going to be so hard and <laughs> be good, but like so hard. And then we just were like, yeah, there were hard things, but it was also just so fun to be married. Mm -hmm. 
so fun to live in the same space together and so fun to get groceries and do normal life together, make Saturday morning breakfast. Mm -hmm. And it was just fun. There were a lot of Mm -hmm. joys embedded in it. And I think our church planting experience has been really similar. We came in going, okay, it's going to be really hard, but good work. (laughs) It has been hard and it has been good work, but it's also just been overwhelmingly a joy to do it. I mean, there's nothing like getting a front row seat to watching the Lord work. And that's really the testament of our church plant and the church now that it is for a little over four years in. Um, we look back and we're like, this only could have been because of the Lord. You know, mm. started in the summer of 2019 with a small group of people around 20 or so adults and 22 kids. You know, so we had mm-hmm. bigger kids ministry than adults. At wow. The time. Uh but then, of course, you know, the next couple of years came and nobody saw those coming and uh, the Lord right. really observed and provided through it all. Right. Because the pandemic hit in year two? Uh, actually, really year one. Yeah, one. Six months old. Yeah. Wow. We only six months old and, and trying to figure out, well, you know, we were just meeting kind of like a Bible study in a classroom at a local mm-hmm. school. How do we suddenly move online and and post sermons, you know, we didn't really have much of any of that. Yeah. So we're just kind of trusting the Lord and and keeping in touch with our core group of folks the best we could. But the Lord really just preserved us and then eventually grew us. And it's been a real mm. a real grace and a real blessing. It's really his work. So mm-hmm. that's awesome. Yeah. yeah. You know, you guys are picking up on this theme that you hear a lot with church planters that it's so stressful and it certainly can be. But do you, and I'm putting you on the spot, so you may not have an answer for this, but do you think that there's anything about your mentality or your posture going into it that has allowed you to experience it more as a joy um, that that you can identify? Well, I think there, um, we, we spent a long season of life deciding, desiring to be in vocational ministry and deci- desiring to be in ministry together, where we worked outside the church. When we lived in Colorado before we were back in North Carolina, I worked um, a couple of odd jobs. I worked at a real estate company. I worked at an app development company. Austin worked as a woodworker. I mean, we were working outside of ministry and the Lord called us to that in that season. The door was not open to us for ministry. But then when this opportunity for us to move back, for Austin to move back and me for the first time to North Carolina, um, for him to enter pastoral ministry. And even when he was doing that at our Sunday church, I was working outside the church and desiring, we both desired to work together and to be, mm. I desired so badly to be in ministry. It sort of feels like the Lord took us like maybe it was about a decade, mm. um, you know, nine-ish years before we really got to do the thing that we so badly desired mm. to do that was work together vocationally in the church and I think that in some ways that preserved um, our hearts mm. for a lot of the trials. I mean, mm. one, it's just helpful, I think, to a lot of people in ministry. I, I mean, we have seen how benefited we have been by our non-ministry jobs, like mm. working in business, working in startups, working hands-on jobs. Um, all of those things really, really equipped us for ministry in ways that seminary couldn't, mm-hmm. you know, there's just mm-hmm. a different kind of education that the Lord allowed us to go through. But we also just got to the point of doing ministry together. And I think we were just ready for those challenges mm-hmm. and um, mm-hmm. excited about it, even though we knew that it would be hard. Mm-hmm. Would you agree? I would agree. And and the only thing I would add is, is that I think the Lord... Um, through mentors, through friendships, through our sending church, um, in other ways, really helped us to keep proper perspective on things. I think it's really easy, um, one, as a pastor, two, as someone on ministry staff of a church, but maybe especially for church planners, because you're doing so much work that's related to the church and vocational ministry, out of necessity, especially early on, it's easy to think that the church is running because of you and mm-hmm. not because of the Lord. Mm-hmm. And I would say that we had a lot of friends and mentors, including like book mentors, like authors and those sorts yeah. of things. Mm-hmm. But also our sending church that help us keep that perspective. Yeah. I still help oversee. There's a church planning residency at our sending church that mm-hmm. I help with. 
And one of the things that I tell every resident when they come in is that being a church planner, being a pastor will never be the most important part of your identity. Yeah. The most important things are that you are first a disciple of Jesus, second, that you are a husband to whomever your wife is, and third, that your dad has the Lord provided you and blessed you with children. And then after that, you're a pastor or a church planner or whatever else. And so keeping that perspective about what's most important, I think, has also been key for us, too, as a family. You know, it really, really is not just saying it really is the Lord's work that he's doing through us. We get to participate in for sure. And we're a part of, but it's really him working through it all. So we're just pointing people to Jesus at the end of the day. That's good. I appreciate that perspective of, uh, of such gratitude to be where you are, Hmm. that, that those trials and challenges just aren't going to phase you, you know, Hmm. because you've waited so long and God sort of preserved, like, I think you said, Amy preserved your desire in your heart to to be here. So that's super cool. Um, another thing that, and I think, I'm not sure if this is a passion for you as well, Austin, if you guys partner on this to some extent, but Amy, you are the creator and founder of Tiny Theologians, which is um, a line of resources that uh, equip the little people of the households with Christian faith. And can you tell us a little bit about that? Because you you seem to have a full-blown online type of ministry um, outside of the church as well. Yeah. Um, well, that is definitely true. I feel like I wear a couple of hats, um, all of them full-time, you know? So it's, yeah. <laughs> you just kind of trust the Lord each week on um, how well we manage the things that God has placed in front of us. But one of the things that God has called me to is this ministry through Tiny Theologians. And Tiny Theologians actually was born in the season of life where Austin was working as a pastor at our sending church. He was building the residency program that he was just describing that he now oversees. Hmm. Um, but he was on staff and I was working outside of the church and really had this desire to put what I had studied for so many years. I mean, I went to Bible school first and got a four-year biblical exposition degree. And then I went to seminary and got my master's of divinity. And here I was (laughs) uh, working at a brewery and a distillery and going, I I really would love to work. So the things that I've learned for seven years, but somehow my work at this brewery is not pulling out my Greek and Hebrew. You know, I just really wanted to put that to use. And I had already started what is now the Bible study schoolhouse, which is an equipping resource for adults who want Mm. to go deeper in God's word. But I had a lot of people asking me if I could make something for kids and we didn't have kids at the time. Mm. Um, but I decided I'm going to make one set of flashcards and I called them the tiny theologian flashcards. They are now called the ABCs of theology, but I made um, these ABC cards that had a theological term for every letter of the alphabet. And I just watched as those started flying off the digital shelves. I wow. was surprised by the response to them. And um, so suddenly we were scurrying to figure out how can we um, create a system for shipping these out. You know, we, we, I had been doing digital, um, sales for a while, selling digital and downloadable Bible studies, that sort of thing. So it had no shipping component and no, um, packaging component. And so all of a sudden mm-hmm. we were scrambling to figure out how to do this, um, on our dining room table. And <laughs> all of a sudden I realized pretty quickly that this was going to be its own thing. And mm-hmm. so I moved it away from what is the Bible study schoolhouse now and made, gave it its own website, branded mm-hmm. the theologians brand. And it has just been honestly one launch after the next that goes better and launches farther than I could have expected. So one set of flashcards and now we have an entire library of workbooks and flashcards and puzzles um, and coloring sheets and sticker books, all that point kids to Christ, um, ideally tackling one theological topic at a time um, or helping them understand how to study their Bible better. And it's all meaty. I think that's what really distinguishes your resources that um, it's, it's, it's deeply rooted theologically. Could you give just one example of one of the ABC flashcards to people who are listening? Um, Well, here's my favorite right now, the ABCs of God's attributes. 
um, are one of our other ABC cards. And we actually just launched a kids podcast called the Tiny Theologians Podcast. Wow. It's an adventure podcast for kids exploring each letter of ABCs of God's attributes. So each in each episode, this brother and sister duo, TJ and Tori, go on an adventure to explore God's unchanging character. And it launches every Monday. So for people listening that have preschoolers, that's who it's geared towards. Monday is podcast day in our household. And um, just today, letter F launched, which is about God being faithful. Hmm. The little girl, Tori, asks, how will she know that God will always keep his promises? And as she goes on this adventure with her little brother, she realizes that God has kept every promise in the past. And the best promise he has made us is the promises and the Savior, which he kept in Christ. That is why all of God's promises are yes and amen in Jesus. Paul mm-hmm. tells us that in the book of Second Corinthians, that all of God's promises are yes in Jesus. And so when God makes us a promise, we can trust that he will keep that promise because he sent Jesus. We can look to the person of Christ and remember that God is faithful to keep his promises. So that's how we want to unpack the concepts with kids. It's one thing for them to memorize that Bible verse, all God's promises are yes and amen um, in Christ. It's one thing for them to memorize that. It's one thing for them to know what the word faithful is, but it's another thing for them to have the whole package and looking to Jesus actually teaches them about the faithfulness of God. And so Mm. we want to help do that for kids in an engaging way, um, a way that's simple for parents because parents often are learning right alongside their kids. I don't know a lot of parents that go, I can rattle off 26 attributes of God. <laughs> you know, we often can't, and that's okay. We can be yeah. with our kids as we teach them about the character of God. So we seek to make it really simple and really accessible. That's why things are flashcards and workbooks and puzzles, because we're not sending parents home with this um, instructional booklet on how to disciple your kids. It's not yeah. like a big binder that you have to work your way through as you grow. No, you right. actually can do this in really simple forms, one card at a time, one page of a workbook at a time, one set of stickers at a time as you and your family develop discipleship routines that will teach them about the God of scripture. I love that. I love how just formative that can be. And there are so many lovely children's resources, like Christian children's resources, but but often there's like just one kind of message, often like a, a flatter message that is less theologically rich. And so I think it's super cool. And I hope people listening to this will go check out your websites and what you guys have there. So um Reading seems to be such a big part of your lives. I see Amy on Instagram all the time, like showing the the books for the season, the books she's reading, uh, your kids, um, or that you guys are both reading to your kids. And your kids are how old? They're three and a half and one and a half. Okay. So they're little, but you guys read as a family. You guys are also readers, lovers of literature. So how, how did reading become a part of your lives as a family? And like, how does it shape your family culture? That's a great question. Uh, so I'm going to zoom back a little bit. I, yeah. I've, I've been a reader for a, a long time. I think middle school, it's kind of like one of those things when you finally find that like one book that gets you hooked on reading. And that happened for me in middle school. It's like ever since then, I've I've kind of devoured books in my in my spare time. And that's why I ended up getting a literature degree mm. uh, in undergrad. So I've I've always loved reading. And so it's always been a part of our lives, but it's also just always, like Amy mentioned earlier, been a part of our relationship as well. Mm-hmm. When we first met one another, we really bonded over a love of reading as part of it. Uh, good books, poetry, she mentioned as well. And so I think that that's kind of naturally over time, you know, just made its way into our family mm-hmm. rhythms and routines with our girls. Uh, you know, just fostering in that they see mom and dad reading a lot, you know, whether they wake up before they're supposed to in the morning and come out of their room, like our toddler's been doing recently. They see us sitting on the couch and reading our Bibles or reading a book um, to, you know, we're always suggesting reading as an activity. Um, Mm -hmm. One, because we love it. We've always loved to read and we want them to capture the love of reading as well. But more than that, we've seen really quickly how it's grown into them loving to read. Even if that Mm -hmm. toddler's like, I'm reading and she's Mm -hmm. sitting there looking at the pictures or because she knows the story really well, just telling it to herself. Um, It's just been a real joy 
And it's something that we can keep talking about, but I think part of the reason for that is because the Lord has wired our hearts to be captured by story yeah. mm-hmm. and beauty at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Would you add anything to that? Yeah, I think um, we want to place in front of our children and in front of ourselves things that are good, beautiful, and true. Mm-hmm. And all of the stories that incorporate goodness, beauty, and truth are going to point back to the gospel in some way. And as parents, as disciple makers in the home, we have to do the work of helping our kids build that bridge mentally between a story that they're reading that has themes of redemption and seeing the redemption story in it. We have to do that work. Um, But it is good work. It's good work to help them see how the best stories proclaim Christ. Um, And it's it's good work to tell them the stories of scripture. I think a lot of times we as parents, um, when we want to do discipleship, if we want to move beyond just reading Bible stories, that is a good desire. That's why I started studying theologians. So obviously I really believe in this desire to move beyond just Bible stories, but we also have to remember that story, um, stories told in scripture are good stories because they point us forward to the king who was promised to come and they and they proclaim the king Jesus who did come. And so often we just spend a lot of our days telling the story, retelling the story of scripture, whether we're reading a princess book and helping our three-year-old understand how to bridge the gap of redemption in Cinderella to the story about how God makes us new in Jesus mm-hmm. or reading the Jesus storybook Bible or the beginner's gospel Bible, um, story Bible. Those are books that we love to read because they're directly about Christ. And so I think just by reading a lot of stories and pointing them to Jesus, it really has been um, a really meaningful habit for our mm-hmm. family, but I also pray that over the long haul, our girls really come to love story in the way that Austin and I do. I'm pretty confident they will, but I'll check in with you guys in like a decade. You know, yeah, that's, that's beautiful. And you know, the book you want to talk about today is a story in which you have to bridge, uh, build a bridge, right. To the story. And it's a quote unquote children's book, but I think C.S. Lewis would argue it's for everyone. So why don't you introduce the book that that you're going to talk about today? Yeah, we're really we're really, really excited to talk about it. Ames can share that she's. We're going to be talking a little bit about the Chronicles of Narnia, so C.S. Lewis's famous seven book series that he wrote, which I'm making my way through for the first time, which has been so fun. Um, I didn't grow up reading it. I think I read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe uh, when I was younger, but uh, I was a Lord of the Rings guy. So Mm -hmm. that was, you know, kind of, and I think for a while I kind of wrote off the Chronicles of Narnia because I didn't see it as quite as sophisticated, which just isn't true. Mm. And unlike, that's right. (laughs) I was going to say, unlike my (laughs) wife, who has read through it probably six or seven times through the whole series, she just did it again recently and has loved it deeply. And so I was like, you know what, it's time for me to pick up and just read through. And so I think the book that we'd love to talk about today is maybe an unexpected one in the series. I know you mm-hmm. mentioned maybe not your favorite. I don't think it's a lot of people's favorite. No. Um, it's the a- horse and his boy. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, yeah. I would also say, I think the language is harder. Like, I harder. feel like he wrote it at a more, with a more elevated language, dialogues more elevated. Yeah. Um, and so it's, it's even more challenging for kids to read, I and think. Sure. Yeah. But please keep going, keep going. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, we, we were going to talk a little bit about the horse and his boy. I think, I think it's really fun for the reason that it's not a lot of people's favorite when they read through the series. Um, I don't know that I would count it as my favorite so far, but, and I, and I, and I have to be honest, I get why it's not people's favorite, because if you're kind of trekking along, depending on what order, which I know is, you know, controversial, what order do you read Michael <laughs> Zimarnia in the, in the ways, in the order that he wrote it, or, you know, the chronology of the actual story, but it, no matter what order you read, it's like suddenly, you know, whether you're three books in or four books in, you've been in this world where you're dealing with these four children and others who are speaking, you know, common English, but also speaking very British as Mm -hmm. well. And it feels very familiar. And then suddenly you're transported into the horse and his boy. And it really does feel like a whole other world. You've gotten used to Narnia, but then suddenly you're in Calamon and Arkenland at certain points. And the language is different. The culture is totally different. You know, like Lewis is taking from different parts of culture from other parts of the world, like parts Mm -hmm. of India, 
Persia, the Middle mm-hmm. East, and it's kind of all together there in Shasta's story through this whole book. But I also think as I was reading through it, <laughs> I was a little confused as well. And, and at times maybe a little frustrated because the other stories just felt like they flowed so easily. And this one was difficult, maybe because of the language, like you were saying. But I think also the story was just a little confusing because Shasta's whole story is just really difficult. It's like trial after trial after trial. You think there's hope and then there's another trial that comes for Shasta. But then, like Lewis does so well, you get about three chapters towards the end. And it's like this triumphant, beautiful moment where he captures you know, a unique aspect of God, which which I'd be glad to read because it's actually when I read it, I was like, this is profound. That's this right. is beautiful. Mm. Those sorts of things as I was reading it and so powerful and it communicates something about the Lord that's so powerful. Um, and it reminded me of something that I had read earlier in the year. I went through this trilogy. It's a three book series of Harry Lee Poe wrote it. It's a um, biography of Lewis. So hmm. a really long biography. And it's a fantastic biography. I learned so much. But one of the things that I learned was that Lewis's approach in writing the Chronicles of Narnia was less for it to be an analogy. So we often sure. think about it as an analogy. It's like, oh, yeah, Aslan's Jesus and those sorts of things. And, and that's partly true. But that's actually not what Lewis was trying to accomplish in his works. Instead, what he would say was he was trying to create a whole sure. world in which the Christian faith and aspects of the Christian faith, like substitutionary atonement, divine sovereignty and providence, like we see in the horse and his boy, are plausible. Yeah. Mm. Plausible even for people outside of the mm-hmm. faith. Like creating mm. a world in which, oh, I can actually see where this is beautiful and good and true. Mm. And so that's really what he was after. And I feel like in reading The Horse and His Boy, I got a real glimpse of that um, in a way that maybe was just really unexpected. Wow. Would one of you be able to give like a, like your own back cover teaser of what, what this book is about without spoiling it? And then I want to hear, I want to hear about (laughs) the revelation that you had. Yeah. So, okay. Without spoiling, without giving away the ending. Well, yeah. Like, yeah. I'll I'll do do my best. best. (laughs) So it opens to a young boy Shasta who's enslaved and he meets in a happenstance meeting a talking horse from Narnia named Bree. And the two of them decide to steal away together and escape both of their cruel masters by making their way to Narnia. They've assumed that Shasta can pass as a Narnian. Mm-hmm. And so they have to pass Collarman. They have to pass through Arkenland in order to get to Narnia. And like Austin said, they encounter challenge after challenge as they make their way there. They end up in um, this city that they have to pass through. And Shasta is mistaken for... Um, one of the royal children. And so he's taken into a palace and there he meets Erebus, who is a young girl who is actually royal blood. And she is trying to actually escape. You know, she doesn't want to be in this world, in this Hmm. um, world of royalty and, you know, standing on ceremony and that sort of thing anymore. So they decide together they're going to go to Narnia. And while they're in this palace, they overhear Queen Susan, who's one of the original four Pevensies, who are now the four Pevensies in the first book in the Chronicles of Narnia are the four children who end up in Narnia and become kings and queens there. So this book is actually set when they're adults and they're ruling. Hmm. Um, Susan is be- having an arranged marriage with this prince who is incredibly cruel and unkind and she decides that she doesn't want to and is sort of starting to get the sense they're going to keep her there as a prisoner and so mm. she steals away, in her- steals away in her ship during the night and Shasta and Erebus overhear all of this mm. and in the process they overhear a plan of Arkenland the sort of shunned prince who um, is not going to be able to marry Susan because she sort of fled away in the night um, is now planning to attack Narnia Mm. and they're going to go to battle against them. He's going to make Susan be his wife, that sort of thing. And so Erebus and Shasta now have a mission that is bigger than themselves with Bree, this talking horse. Um, They have a mission that's bigger than themselves to get to Narnia, not just to arrive in Narnia for their own freedom, though both of them really still wrestle internally with the selfishness of, I just wanted, I started this mission, this journey in order to just be free from slavery Mm -hmm. or free from the version of bondage that I was living in. 
Um, but now they have something greater than themselves. They're coming to Narnia with this message of warning. And it is not an easy journey for them. They um, spend many nights. I mean, they're, they're children traveling across <laughs> many, many miles with this horse that has a lot of wisdom, but has forgotten a lot of the ways of Narnia. Mm. And in this journey, they encounter a lot of foes. They're attacked by... Um, a wild lion at one point and they make it to sort of the outskirts of Narnia. And as they continue their journey, um, they just face challenge after challenge. And in the end, without giving away the end of the book, Aslan comes to them and shows them before Narnia goes to battle with Arkenland, before, you know, sort of everything um, kind of comes to a head at the end of the book, Aslan shows them that he was at work in every aspect of their journey, even when he did not, even when they could not see, um, even when they couldn't see his hand at work. And mm-hmm. so I think that is why this book is so gripping for me. I love the adventures of Narnia for no more and no less than what they are. They are sort of these fantasy books. They are storybook stories. I mean, the Chronicles of Narnia open with sort of this like good versus evil and good always triumphs. And the books kind of win really quickly. So if somebody has like a teenager that wants to get into reading literature, these books have a are an easy win in that mm-hmm. way. You get into them and sort of the good guys always win, the bad guys always lose, and there's always an option of redemption. So even the complex characters, like in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, for example, in that story, Edmund sort of betrays the family, betrays Aslan, and he's redeemed at the end. It Even the complex characters are pretty... Um, easily redeemed they're mm-hmm. simple um literary structures but this book is not that way and i think it actually reminds us much more of our own stories many of mm-hmm. us entered into this christian life thinking it would be a little more storybook like we would walk mm-hmm. hand in hand with jesus and we would grow gray hair and we would enter into glory with a lot without a lot of the suffering or a lot mm-hmm. of the challenges um, or chapters of difficulty that we've experienced. And this book, I think, reminds us to have eyes to see the hand of God in our lives, but also reminds us that we are often blind to the hand of God in our own lives until glory. And in glory, we can say in faith, now in glory, we will look back and see God's presence and power mm-hmm. in our lives in a way that we can't now. But it keeps us navigating these challenges with an, a wandering eye to say, God, where are you in this? And what are you doing? And how are you leading me? And where are we going together on this mm-hmm. great adventure that we call the life of Christian discipleship? Mm-hmm. I think you should uh, read that passage. Can ooh, we get yeah. give away? No. Um, bookmark? Yeah, I do. Okay. got a bookmark. Okay. So this is Shasta, and it's not at the end of the book, so it's not spoiling okay. in any way. Okay. But it's a really powerful moment that I think is really telling of why we found this book so helpful, so profound in many ways. But it's this moment where Shasta is alone by himself. He's wandering in a fog, and he's feeling really sorry for himself. He's recounting. He's feeling lonely. He's feeling ultimately empty and then suddenly something appears though he doesn't know what it is at the moment and he's feeling spent at this moment again sorry for himself and so that's kind of where we pick up and and I'm not going to read all of it I'll kind of skip around here a little bit but he said and being very tired and having nothing inside of him he felt so sorry for himself that the tears started rolling down his cheeks what put a stop to all of this was a sudden fright Shasta discovered that someone or somebody was walking beside him. It was pitch dark and he could see nothing and the thing or person was going so quietly that he could hardly hear any footfalls. What he could hear was breathing. His invisible companion seemed to breathe on a very large scale and Shasta got the impression that it was a very large creature. And he had come to notice this breathing so gradually that he really had no idea how long it had been there. It was a horrible shock. (laughs) And it darted in his mind that he had heard long ago that there were giants in the northern countries, and he bit his lip in terror, and now he really had something to cry about. And so he stopped crying. The thing, unless it was a person, went on beside him very quietly that Shasta suddenly began to hope he had only imagined it. But just as he was becoming quite sure of it, there suddenly came a deep, rich sigh out of the darkness beside him that couldn't be his imagination. Anyway, he had felt the hot breath of that sigh on his chilly, 
left hand. And then Shasta says, who are you? And one who has waited long for you to speak said the thing. It was a voice not loud, but very large and deep. Are you a giant? Asked Shasta. You might call me a giant, but I'm not like the creatures you call giants. Shasta said, I can't see you at all. You're not, you're not something dead, are you? Oh, please, please do go away. What harm have I ever done you? Oh, I'm the unluckiest person in the world. There he is feeling sorry for himself again. Surely another trial is coming. But once more, he felt the warm breath of the thing on his hand and face. There, it said, that is not the breath of a ghost. Tell me your sorrows. And so Shasta goes on to kind of recount the tales of his sorrows and this whole journey that we've been reading up until this point in the story. And he's basically trying to get this creature that he doesn't know who it is at the point <laughs> at this point in the story to feel sorry for him as well. And he says, the creature responds after he shares this long story. And he says, I do not call you unfortunate, said the large voice. Well, don't you think it was bad luck to meet so many lions along the way, which is an earlier part of the story? There was only one lion, said the voice. What on earth do you mean? I've just told you there were at least two the first night and there was only one. But he was swift of foot. Well, how do you know, said Shasta? I was the lion. I was the lion who forced you to join with Erebus. I was the cat who comforted you among the houses of the dead. I was the lion who drove the jackals from you while you slept. I was the lion who gave the horses the new strength of fear for the last mile so that you would reach King Loon in time. And I was the lion you do not remember, who pushed the boat in which you lay, a child near death, so that it came to shore where a man sat wakeful at midnight to receive you. And it's this beautiful moment, I think, of, of Shasta realizing, one, whom he's speaking to, but two, this moment where I think Lewis is portraying so powerfully the divine hand of providence. Yeah. And the divine hand of providence that the Lord is with us through those moments of trial, through those moments of suffering. Now, we never are promised in Scripture, and Jesus never promises in Scripture, even by his very own life, right, that we won't experience suffering as believers. What he does promise is that he will be with us through it and see us to the other side eventually. And so I think it's this moment here that that Lewis captures so beautifully of what divine providence and God's hand of sovereignty look like on our lives. Moments where we would look back and be like, gosh, Lord, weren't you there? Or gosh, Lord, look at this terrible thing that happened. And he's like, well, actually, what you don't know is that that terrible thing actually preserved you from a much worse thing. Mm -hmm. Or that terrible thing, it was actually me getting you to the other side. And so it's this beautiful moment. And I also love at the beginning. So Aslan, of course, being the voice of God, that of all the questions he could have asked and the things he could have said to Shasta, he could have just put him in his place in that moment. But instead, what does he say? He says, tell me your sorrows. Mm-hmm. It's this deep care that the Lord has in his heart for his people and his heart for really sinners and sufferers like all of us. Mm-hmm. Tell me your sorrows. Tell me about it as if he doesn't know. Mm-hmm. You know, but he wants us to express and then work it out as he you know converses with us so it's a really really powerful story in that way and that's just one moment i think in the book but yeah it's so deeply consoling what Mm -hmm. you read you know Mm -hmm. i can imagine people hearing that and just being so consoled by it Mm -hmm. and so being reminded of how complicated our stories can be and yet god (laughs) God sees and he's walked beside us. Like, how has that helped you? How's it informed you guys as um, church planters and, you know, ministry leaders, people who walk beside other people with really complicated stories? I think one of the most powerful parts of the book comes right, for me, comes right after what Austin read. And, um, Aslan is recounting that when they really needed to make this sort of deadline to warn Narnia about the coming danger um, from their enemies, um, Aslan was a lion who gave the horses the fear of, uh, or the the speed of fear. Like he encouraged them by kind of nipping at their ankles and stuff like that. And Erebus, who's the young girl that is traveling 
with him get scratched by the lion. And right after this part of the conversation that Austin read, he says, so you, Aslan, are the one who wounded Erebus? And he and Aslan just said, I'm not telling you her story. Everyone's own story is, is only for me to tell them. I, I'm not telling you their story. I'm only telling you your story with me. And that piece has stuck out to me in come back to mind so many times when I'm speaking with people um, or even wondering sort of in the recesses of my mind when I'm mulling over ministry experiences. You know, we've had the difficulty of people leaving our church plant, which I know a lot of pastors out there have had the difficulty of people leaving their church, whether or on good or difficult terms, yeah. there's always a bit of sting to it. And I yeah. think even more so with a church plant when you're so small, you know, we had people decide to leave who were, who felt pretty integral pretty early on when we were, you know, just a handful of families. And we kind of felt like we were holding on to each other because it was the middle of COVID season. And there was some sting to that. And so when you go, Lord, but why, like, what are you doing in this? Um, And, you know, you can sort of in your own arrogance and ministry, um, mind, you can convince yourself that, well, I know what's best for this family. And I know that it would be best for them to stay with us. Like, of course, mm-hmm. the best thing for them. And the Lord just has brought that scene to mind so many times to say, I'm not walking, you're not walking beside them in the spirit. I'm telling them their story and I am telling you only your story. So mm-hmm. you're to trust mm-hmm. me with this loss. You're mm-hmm. to come to me with the grief of this loss, the sting of someone leaving. You're to walk with me and that I'm going to walk with them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's been a consolation to me in so many seasons um, where things feel difficult. And I have a question about why the Lord's doing something with someone else. And this reminds me that that's not my story necessarily to know. Mm -hmm. I think the other way that this story helps us, um, it kind of coaches us in showing us we don't, we don't have the privilege that Shasta does of like sort of the Lord coming and telling us all the things at one time (laughs) that he's been doing in our lives. But that's sort of the privileged perspective often of being a person in ministry is when people are suffering and you've walked with them maybe in small group or through counseling or something like that. We have the joy of seeing how God's been at work in a way that maybe they can't see themselves. And one of the ways we bless people is by saying, let me actually affirm what I see God doing. Let me mm. link some of these things together for you that maybe you're too close to see, but I saw mm-hmm. how you trusted the Lord with that financial decision and then how you navigated that tricky relationship. Mm-hmm. And then I saw how you made the disciplined time to get into God's word every day. And I've seen you grow in prayer and I hear you growing in prayer when you pray in small group. I see what God is doing. Shasta mm-hmm. has this real privilege of having Aslan, the God figure himself come and say, I've been at work in all of these ways. Well, Shasta couldn't see that on his own. We may not be able to see it even in our own lives, but we can call out the life that we see God forming Mm. people. And it can be a real blessing to them when we can sort of in one fell swoop say, I see God at work in your life. And when you are struggling to believe that, I'm going to believe it for you because here is what I see him doing. And here's the ways I see him at work. That's powerful. That's powerful. I heard part of the story. And I knew that because when I was reading and I got done with that chapter, which has that quote in it that she mentioned, she was like, isn't that so good? That's like my favorite thing. So I, I'm, I'm glad that you shared that. Yeah, I kind of I I like left that set up for you to share something. <laughs> reading it in bed next to me and I knew the chapter that he was on and I was like reading my own book and I was sort of like, where is he? Like I, I it was his first time. So it just yeah. felt like this really, I was like reading over his shoulder. <laughs> how he would experience this. Story. I didn't want to steal that message Love from you. So much. <laughs> you were able to share that. That's so good. That's so good. That's good. I, I still, what would you would you echo Amy would you add anything to that about how this has shaped you as a pastor yeah so I I would definitely I totally agree with everything she said at the personal level um I I might just like pull back a little bit and just um encourage any pastors that might be listening or others um just of the importance of reading literature which I know may seem like a weird sidetrack but I really don't think it is 
we've mentioned this, I think, once or twice in our in our time talking already, but that sort of classical triad of the good, the beautiful, and the true. And I think one of the reasons that I have made reading literature, apart from just loving it already, a regular part of my rhythm and practice, even as a pastor, and a really important one, is because I think as pastors, we can focus, understandably, we focus and we value truth, like capital T, truth, you know, whether it's communicating it from the pulpit, spending time in God's word, we read a lot of truthful things. We're often communicating the goodness of God to others, whether that's in, you know, conversations where we're sharing the gospel or sharing about the goodness of God, preaching from the pulpit. But the third aspect, the beautiful, is the one that often gets left to the side or we don't know what to Mm -hmm. do with. But I think it's equally as important because the Lord has created us and given us hearts and lives wired for beauty. We all desire it. We all crave it in some way. And if we're missing that aspect, we're getting an incomplete picture of who God is. Mm. And so one of the ways of maintaining beauty and seeking it out has been for us, I think, um, and definitely for myself, reading literature, um, reading story, because story shows it doesn't just tell. Yeah, It's not didactic. It's mm-hmm. not just teaching, but it shows us, it captures us, captures our imagination and takes us along. And um, that's really important because that's also how our own hearts as people are captured as well. And how are we going to communicate the beauty of God or the beauty of gospel unless we've been captured by it? And so um, I think it's been so fun then to read stuff like The Horse and His Boy by Lewis or even other um, works as well that are just beautiful, beautifully written, but also still capture truths about God, again, in a beautiful way, Mm -hmm. a way that kind of catches you by surprise. Or I never would have thought about it in that way, but that's so helpful. And, you know, whether it becomes just something meaningful to you in your own life and walk with the Lord personally, or, you know, maybe it's an illustration you're sharing from the pulpit or in conversation with someone, um, the, it, it pays dividends that I think um, may surprise you. Yeah, mm-hmm. That's lovely. Um, I know we're almost out of time, but are there titles that were floating to your mind as you were talking about? Uh, beautiful literature that you would want to share with us oh man oh man i mean should i just walk you over to our show uh yeah i mean no, no, no. Hey, if somebody true. came up to church uh, on sunday to yeah, you and ask. said hey pastor austin Absolutely. i know you're talking about this i heard you on this podcast yeah. what would you recommend i start with and i know you might tailor it to the person but sure. Um, no, it's a great question. And um, I'm not going to presume that everybody's taste will be my own, but obviously yeah. uh, we love Lewis. I've loved going through the Chronicles of Narnia. Obviously, I'm a huge Tolkien fan as well. I uh, took a class on him in seminary. So anything by him as well is really, he's a really gifted storyteller. Um, someone else who I've kind of caught on to recently, um, believer does a little bit of everything. He's also a songwriter, a poet, Malcolm Geit, mm-hmm. um, British. Um, he's in the Anglican church, but really gifted poet, really gifted writer, thinks really well um, about beauty and mm-hmm. what it means to be a Christian, but also just writes really beautiful poetry. Um, another one whom I love um, is Wendell Berry. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, I've loved his poetry for a long time because it's um, simple to read, like anybody could pick it up and read it and not feel like daunted, like they're picking up Shakespeare or, mm-hmm. or something yeah. like that. But it's still deeply profound. And some of my favorite poems have been uh, his Sabbath poems, where he would every Sunday walk his farmland and write a poem, basically like a prayer to God. And those are some, mm. some really beautiful moments that he's yeah. captured in beautiful truths about God as well. I mean, I could continue talking about. Luke. Yeah, those are great. That's great. Yeah. Amy, would you add one or two to those? <laughs> well, the one that I would add, I'm a little nervous to add <laughs> um, because it's a little bit controversial in the Christian world, I guess. Mm-hmm. Harry Potter. Yeah. Or <laughs> it is, Go ahead. I love, Go ahead. Go ahead I love the yeah. Harry Potter books. Yeah, we're big fans. We've read we're them. big fans. We've yep. read them. I was not allowed to read them growing up. Mm-hmm. And I understand why. Some people are very cautious about them. Um, I don't see them, now that I've read them, I don't see them as much different from the magic in Narnia or Lord Mm -hmm. of the Rings. I really don't Mm -hmm. see a distinction between the two. 
But there is such a Christological arch through all of those books that because it's written for teens and tweens, because it's children's literature, it's mm-hmm. just so overt. So if someone is saying, well, I, I'm hearing you say that we can see the redemptive narrative, the Christological arc in fiction, but I'm not sure I'm practiced enough to see that. And they're going to jump. We don't want them to jump into the deep end with, you know, Dostoevsky or something. Yeah. So, you know, some of those themes are also like overt and stuff like that. But reading children's literature like Narnia, like Harry Potter, it just becomes so clear. I mean, in Harry Mm -hmm. Potter, it's good versus evil. And in the end, (laughs) the one who is called the chosen one gives his life so that the people who are on his side might be free from the power of darkness. Mm -hmm. And he literally says at the end of the book, the last enemy to be defeated is death. So when Mm -hmm. people say there's no Christological tones in Harry Potter, I just, I have a really hard time believing that they've read any of it because uh-huh. it's here. <laughs> um, yeah. I think those books have just been um, really refreshing to me in that way to see so clearly these themes of good and evil and um, how the goodness wins in the end and how goodness really has power to defeat the darkness. That's awesome. That's probably the best theological argument I've ever heard for why Christians should read Harry Potter. So thank well, you now, for that. Don't, don't go saying Amy says Christians should read Harry okay. Potter. Okay. All right. They might burn me alive. Right. How Christians but could read you, it and benefit. Yeah. If you are looking to read Harry Potter and you are looking for theological overtones, you don't have to look very hard. That's right. That's right. Austin and Amy, thank you so much. This has been just a lovely time. Thank you for having us, Heather. Thanks for listening in on my conversation with church planters Austin and Amy Gannett about C.S. Lewis's novel, The Horse and His Boy. You can follow the ministry of their church and tiny theologians in the Bible study schoolhouse by checking out the links on the show notes. Those and other resources we mentioned are listed there. Also, if you want to support the podcast in spirit or with your bank account, you can subscribe to it at yprb.substack.com. Give it a rating on your favorite podcast platform, share an episode on the socials, or send the link to a friend. Once again, I'm your host, Heather Weber. For more information about me, head on over to my website at heatherweber.org. That's Weber with one B. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to read a great book today.